Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Welcome to The Times Opinion Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery, and in a little while we'll be joined by Anne Treneman, The Times' parliamentary sketch writer, and also Peter Kellner of YouGov and pollster to The Times, and we'll be talking about the state of UK politics. But we're going to begin with Richard Fletcher, our business editor, and Phil Aldrich, our economics editor, to talk about the state of the world economy. My friends here have just been to Davos in the Swiss Alps to talk with business leaders and central bankers and many of the great and the good about the tides washing over our economies around the world. Now, this is very unfair. As someone steeped in politics, I get to go to Blackpool and Bournemouth and Manchester and Birmingham for our getaways, and you get to go to Davos. But without me continuing my jealous mode, tell me, having been with all these central bankers and capitalists and so on, are you come back more optimistic, Phil, or more pessimistic about where our economy is going? Well, obviously, they, they talk global themes, and uh, they, they tend to be more pessimistic than they were last year, unfortunately. That uh, is despite you know, the, the fact that growth global growth is actually supposed to be better this year than it mm-hmm. was last year and there's been some you know uh, tailwinds in the shape of the oil price but the thing you heard a lot of was uncertainty about the global economy mostly through the political concerns that they have so you know russia was brought up uh, concerns about uh, the middle east as well obviously um and then just and i mean you mentioned Greece. I mean, obviously, Greece happened after Davos had finished, but uh, obviously there were concerns about uh, about Greece and the, and the impact that that can have across Europe. So there's so there's just people are worried more, but there is an underlying sense that there should be some uh, some confidence. If they could just move on from the worry, then things would be a bit better. Richard Fletcher, did you share this sense that um, they? Uh the great and the good of Davos, who we might ask a few questions about who these people are a little bit later in this podcast, but did, did, did you agree with Phil? You came back slightly more on the downside? I did I did come back slightly more on the downside. I, I sort of came back with two other thoughts, really. One, people were very bullish about the US economy, yeah. um, and, I, and, and I suppose that's obvious uh, when you stand back and think about it, but people were very, were very upbeat about the US. One of the things I came away with was the power of the central banker, not to sound too much like some sort of conspiracy theorist, but uh, when you look at QE and, and the effects of QE uh, has in terms of income uh, distribution, uh, it is a transfer from, from one section of society to the other, not to sound too much like a sociologist. Central Bank made their announcement about extra quantitative easing, well, quantitative easing for the Eurozone while you were there in Davos. Uh, absolutely, and therefore what's interesting is those decisions are now being made by central bankers, not politicians. I mean, they, they may be the right decisions, but they are being made by unelected yeah. uh, uh, central bankers. We've had, in, in my view, we've had two major sort of events, economic events in recent times. We've had the fall in the oil price, and we've had this vote by the Greek people to really reject the terms of the, the the bailout mechanism, the nature of austerity that the Eurozone is in, imposing on them. For me, one sort of suggests good news, uh, certainly for countries like our own that largely use oil rather than export it. But then the Greek um, situation is potentially very worrying for, for the Eurozone. Which of those two factors do you think 
we should be most focused on, uh, Richard? Well, and Russia. Don't forget Russia. We sh- one of the one of the big talking points uh, in Davos, partly because they do have a lot of uh, a lot of companies come who are mining companies and natural resource companies. But Russia and and the isolation of Russia was also a huge talking point. And I yes, think that Phil is, mentioned that. Yeah. I think that's really important. Um, uh, I, I think oil is in the short term is definitely disruptive and uh, is it causes volatility in the longer term if prices remain at these levels it's a transfer of wealth from the oil producing nations you know mainly in the middle east to the to 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 to, to ourselves and from despots to democracies well not entirely apologies to the likes of australia and canada and that yeah but it is but, but it's but it's 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 for for, for many countries it's effectively a free tax cut because you know, the cost of living is absolutely uh, reduced and uh, and, and it, but at no cost to, to that country. Because I, I saw um, something in the uh, LA Times, Phil, recently that sort of said that for the average US household the fall in the oil price was worth about $50 a week when you included all of the effects on the supply chain um, as well as how much American families put in their gas in their, in their tank. Is that sort of benefit to people that we're talking about this is the kind of bonanza that George Osborne couldn't have beyond his dreams really ahead of him in a general election yeah it, it absolutely it is it's a it's a it's a huge boost to uh, consumption and uh, household spending which is which is um, about you know, th- consumption is about three quarters sorry two-thirds of the of the UK economy so yeah. it's, it's it's enormous I met a guy out in Davos who works in the energy industry he was telling me that he, he, he sees early figures and and he said he said the Americans are doing what they do best they're consuming now so because the cut in the oil price has basically left more money in their pockets they're spending it all and obviously that is giving the US economy a, yeah. a huge boost similarly because it's it's very consumption based yes it's 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 undeniably indisputably a good thing and the, and, the, and the marginal rate of consumption in advanced nations which are basically the beneficiaries of this is much higher than the marginal rate of consumption in in the oil producing nations so you get the global economy does benefit even though it's actually a transfer of wealth from one person to the other it's just that, that those with it now spend more of it yeah. no, but, but at the very sorry just at the Richard. very micro level there are losers so on Monday BP announced that there was a pay freeze for the coming year for all their staff so if you work for BP yeah. uh, I don't suppose it's not, it's I don't Scotland and Aberdeen. No, and I was going to say Aberdeen. I don't suppose they're selling yeah. quite as many Maseratis in Aberdeen as they were <laughs> a couple of years ago. And Aberdeen, my, my heart bleeds for the uh, oil industry executives. <laughs> but in, but well, actually, in Aberdeen, it wasn't just the oil industry executives uh, um, by the Maseratis. To be fair, but uh, <laughs> but yeah. So in somewhere like Aberdeen, there obviously have been huge effects. And if you look, you know, there's a pay freeze at BP, and I was reading over the weekend that they're looking at changing the working patterns for oil rig workers so that they get less time off and, and more time on as such. So, so there are at the micro level there are losers as well as winners. And how long do we think this will last? I interviewed John Key, the New Zealand Prime Minister for the Times last week, and I should say your analysis, Phil, on the effects of the oil price. Uh, that interview with uh, John Key. If you are a Times subscriber listening to this podcast, please do go to thetimes.co.uk/commentcentral, and I'll put some interesting background reading links for you to uh, explore some of the things that we've been talking about. But John Key's view was that because of big changes in energy extraction industry like the emergence of shale we are seeing perhaps an oil, a reduction in the oil price perhaps not of the scale we've got at the moment but a big uh, reduction perhaps for a long period of time would, would you agree yeah with well, the 
the Saudi Arabia is, is known as the swing uh, state in oil production, and the yeah. uh, one of the crown princes of Saudi Arabia said, "We're not going to see a hundred dollar uh, oil again." Um, uh, it 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 definitely feels as though uh, that you know we're not going to go back to the sort of hundred and fifteen, hundred and twenty dollar oil for a long time and if you look historically at the kind of reaction after there's been this big crash in oil prices uh, in the past it does it does tend to I mean it will creep up again but it but it does tend not to recover to the levels it was at before so you know this is going to be a longer term boost to, to uh, people's income there's going to be more money in people's pockets as you know take, it costs less to fill up your car okay so that's so that's factor one the oil price the other thing I want you <coughs> to uh, enlighten me uh, me and more importantly our listeners about is the um is the situation in Greece. So now my view is that the uh, open-necked, uh, tireless new Greek prime minister won't actually get very much from Europe, partly because you look at um, Mariano Rajoy in Spain, he's facing a huge challenge from Podemos, this left-wing party led by this ponytailed guy that looks a little bit uh, similar in his sort of left-wing views. Spain, other nations facing the kind of uh, Syriza challenge aren't going to give concessions because that will encourage revolts in their own countries. They're going to want to tell Greece to encourage all the rest of Europe that you have to stick to the, to the plan. Am I right, uh, Richard Fletcher? And if I am right, what does that mean for Greece? I think we've got an amazing game of poker to be played sure. in the coming weeks. And uh, if I'm absolutely honest, I'm not sure who's going to win it. <laughs> I will, I'm quite confident that they will come to some sort of compromise. Where that compromise is, I'm not sure whether they, they the, 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 you know, the, 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 the dates move out or I'm not sure. But I, I, there has to be some sort of conf- uh, there has to be some sort of compromise. Otherwise, we are looking at a Brexit. If you look at the polling, the Greek people wanted Syriza in. They wanted the anti-austerity, but they also want to stay in the euro yeah. uh, overwhelmingly. So it makes it very difficult for Syriza if they uh, if they don't get what they want to then say, right, well, we're going to leave the eurozone, which is the, which is the natural because if they default on the debt, that's yeah. how they clear the debt. If they go back to the drachma, um, you know, they will become more competitive. I mean, it's you know, economically speaking, it makes sense. It'll be enormously painful in the short term to do it, but there is an argument that they they can eventually get there it, it, it would be a, a betrayal of the, of the people in a way of the people of Greece if, if the majority of them want to stay in uh, in the euro so I, I don't I can imagine a referendum later this year if they don't get what they want um, yeah. a second election you know all sorts of permutations the, because the people who vote, voted for Syriza they are people who have voted for a really radical package you know, Fletch talks about compromise but these are not voters in compromising mode no and to be fair to them the 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 way that the greek bailout was structured back in 2010 uh, there should have been a massive debt write off the imf even yeah. has done a subsequent paper where they said that where they said that and so you know what's happened is that the is the is the european taxpayer other countries taxpayers have picked up the bill for the private creditors who should yeah. have been who should have been given a massive haircut Absolutely. um and so I, unfortunately is that the solution then well, I mean, to be honest, Greece is... I mean, how do you survive with 180% <coughs> debt to GDP and yeah. your, your economy is 25% smaller? I mean, it, you know, Syriza are, are right. Any any rational uh, economist or any rational politician in Europe would accept that, that they they need to cut their debt pile. It's, it, it's not sustainable. With it. But as you say, it's the spillover effects across Europe. I mean, can can they say Greece is a, a, an isolated incident? You know, we made some errors. You know, this is this is a country that needs to go through reforms and, and not 
and not have any um, a contagion across uh, the rest of Europe. And uh, obviously, and they can't give too much because, you know, Greece did some pretty bad things in the, in the build-up to its bust. Uh, but neither of you see the end of the Euro zone in, in this. You think somehow no. Greece, Berlin... Even Frankfurt, they will they will muddle through and they will find a way of saving the single currency because once they let one currency, one country go, the whole thing potentially unravels. Oh, it could. It, it, at the moment, there's no way any country can leave because there's no structure for sure. any country there's exiting. No, yeah. I mean, if there if there if there is a demonstration of how to, for a country can exit, then you know m- maybe maybe the euro is actually become stronger because you don't have this kind of ridiculous net that has caused, has contributed hasn't caused it but has contributed to Greece's problems. Richard? Yeah, no, I I, I, I don't, I can't I mean maybe Greece will, you know, who who knows what will happen in the coming months but I I can't see, I mean where we sit today I I can't imagine a Grexit, it seems to me there will have to be some sort of compromise and they will you know, they will muddle on and they'll kick, you know, to use that terrible expression, they'll kick that can yeah. further down the road. But we've been kicking it down the road, or at least using that terrible expression since at least 2008. <laughs> so, uh, unfortunately, I think we're going to keep on using it. OK, well, before we end this uh, segment of the podcast, let me ask you why you go to Davos, Richard. What, what, do, who, who, who do you meet? What, what happens there that makes it uh, essential for half of the business uh, desk of the Times and the FT and all the other papers to, <laughs> well, that, that, to uh, decamp uh, to uh, Switzerland? I may be exaggerating. No, 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 no. You're, but it's not half the, it's not half the business desk. <laughs> Unfortunately, we can only we secure far fewer passes uh, than uh, some other newspapers. Uh, so it's three of us go. I mean, for a business editor, it is the most it's like a party conference is the best yeah. way to describe there, there's these fantastic sessions to during the day organized by the wef uh the world economic forum which are very which are very thought-provoking and, and, are, and are very stimulating and are great and then there are these fantastic parties at either end of the day either some breakfast and some fantastic parties that champagne oh, breakfast no, no champagne but which are slightly which the wef slightly disapprove of in reality they don't like all these parties they consider yeah. them slightly tasteless and so for <laughs> business editor it's absolutely amazing you can get there, and I can meet, uh, and I and 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 do. You meet twenty-five FTSE one hundred chief executive and chairman. You meet some fantastic politicians. You you. So it's for a journalist. There is no doubt. It's a fantastic event to go to. Um, so uh, no skiing. No skiing. I didn't get any skiing. In the, my only uh, sort of mountain adventure was on the Saturday morning. I had a saw a couple of. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
uh, chief executives in the morning, uh, uh, including Mark Bolland at MS, who was uh, who's who was on a panel talking about talent, the sort of discussion you get. And then I had a few hours before Mark Carney appeared on a panel, so I did get the railway halfway up uh, the mountain, and then I walked back down the footpath. <laughs> That's as close as I got. That was my one little bit of uh, relaxation. I mean, it, it is great for journalists. The one thing I would say is. It is a certain type of person there, and uh, a few years ago it was quite radical when they invited NGOs and a few, you know, uh, pop stars. Uh, and and in those days it was, but they're now part of the establishment. You know, Oxfam were there. Well, Oxfam are part of the establishment. And yeah. uh, what's really interesting is that, that you know there were no what would be described as radicals. There was no Nigel Farage, there's no Le Pen, and yet the the rise of the radical parties, to use an expression I don't like, but to, the rise of radical parties in Europe is one of the m- biggest issues as far as I'm, for, for me. I think that's a huge issue for Europe. And yet no, there's no one there for many yeah. of those parties. You were, you were saying you were at one gathering. Yeah, I was at breakfast. So there, was a, there was a breakfast on Britain, uh, the UK's position in Europe, which was organised by WPP on... Um, uh, on one uh, Wednesday, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, uh, with Lord Manderson as one of the speakers, but actually there wasn't anyone in the room who disagreed with the consensus, which was, uh-huh. you know, we need to stay in Europe, we need to fight. So it was should more t- like t- a. See, this is the reason why it should take me next. Jim. Absolutely. I with the so it was more like a rally yeah. than a debate because yeah. everyone agreed with everybody. So, so uh, that would be my only. That would be my comment. But for a business editor, it's a fantastic uh, five days. Does. Terrible damage. But in to your case liver. John Wither, our editors listening, you of course very hard working. It was very hard working, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it is exhausting. It is like a party conference. You you get too yeah. little sleep. There's too many people to see, and uh, at the end of the night, there's some quite nice wine to be drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, is, uh, you, how, how many of these have you attended? Uh, that is my fourth now. This is your fourth, and you agree with. Uh, Richard, it's, a, it's a great networking occasion. You you learn. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a deal. crucible for ideas as well, which is which is quite helpful if you're um, if, if you're trying to trying to think things through. Um, and it's 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 basically a massive networking event. And there was there was Francis O'Grady there from the TUC. From, yeah. So you know, although I wonder whether that's uh, she's getting uh, Richard sort of says Oxfam the establishment. Yeah. I wonder if the TUC are a bit of the establishment as well. But yes, it's a different voice from capitalist leaders. Yeah, one. Yeah. But it's, it, and it is, it is you. The, the great thing about it, I mean, every there are all these different coloured badges, and 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 you, you know, so it is, it's not completely classless. Let's not pretend. But you do yeah. just bump into, you know, you find yourself bumping into the most amazing people, people you haven't seen for years. But also, you know, brushing past Christine Lagarde, even though it, it does feel slightly mm. star-studded. Yeah. Male-dominated, very male-dominated. Yeah, uh, very white. Uh, actually, Stale, not, male and pale. Is it was. It was a little bit like that. Well, the entourage, Jacob Zuma was there. He had a, he had a oh. great entourage. Um, the biggest entourage may have been for Will I Am, though. <laughs> and I'll show you my selfie later. Oh, well, um, will, you, will you put it up on our um, podcast um, um, blog? No. No. <laughs> uh, Richard, Phil, thanks very much. Okay, so that's the world economy sorted, and let's now turn to uh, UK domestic politics. And I'm joined by Anne Treneman, the Times' parliamentary sketchwriter, and Peter Kellner of YouGov, and pollster to the Times. Anne, you've been sketching Parliament for a very long time now. For twelve years. Twelve years for the for the Times, and. Uh, can you remember a time when it's been as lifeless? People talk about the zombie parliament. Is is there anything going on in there at the moment? There's not. A, it has to be said, there's not a lot going on. In the past, though, there has often been not a lot going on because 
the new speaker did has changed things a lot. We have you know, urgent questions, which we never used to have. So he's, been, he's been great for the backbenchers. He's been he? great for the sketch writers as well. Yeah, in the sense that, you know... <laughs> and, and, and Mrs. Burko too. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but under Michael Martin, we did have often not a lot happening in Parliament because what was happening in the world wasn't often reflected in Parliament. And the executive had much more power in the sense that when they wanted to make a statement, they would come and make a statement. Now they can be dragged there. So we so put that to one side. The fact that we have fixed term Parliament and the fact that basically we are now in a, like a dead time. It's sort of like the Bermuda Triangle of politics at the moment. Nothing is happening because everyone is talking about the election. So it's now it's a hundred days to the election. You know, before when we didn't really know when the election would be called, we, we would didn't spend all of our time speculating. We would about spend when a lot of time speculating be. about that. But in the interim period, we would also be having, uh, you know, Parliament and activity. At the moment, there is not a lot going on. I mean, Ed Miliband has kind of come up with this zomb zombie parliament thing. I think it's not quite as bad as that. But, you know, I did look up, I did actually pop into the chamber last Thursday, and there were about four people talking about <laughs> not a lot. <laughs> and, 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 and what do you blame? People blame the fixed term Parliament Act, but is it more that the fixed term is five years long rather than four years long? The, the natural biorhythm of UK post-war politics has been a four-year parliament. Well, I think it's has this just been a year too long? It's a year too long, definitely. I think four is, for me, it's just a natural length of time that a government should exist. But also, David Cameron and his government, his ideas is that we do less. Yeah. He wants government to do less. Well, he spent a few years legislating to do less. Now he's doing less. Oh, so it's a very There's conservative. Not a lot going on. Very conservative. <laughs> One of my favourite legislatures in the world is the is the Texas legislature, which I think only meets for about a quarter mm. of the year, and I the rest know, of well, the time they let Texas, which is an economy doing very well, <laughs> govern itself. Well, you know, I'm from Oregon, and they used to meet every <laughs> other year. <laughs> so, uh, no, I, I, but I think a national parliament obviously should be meeting uh, often, and there's. I think that there would be more to do, but I also think, in a way, the Conservative Party and the Coalition have fallen out with love with each other. They don't want to do anything. I mean, the Lib Dems don't want to do anything because they don't want to be tied mm. to any more Tory policies. The Tories don't want to do anything because they want to get on with the election. So they've kind of had a massive, what I would call a sort of sulk, is what it yeah. amounts to. Um, and the result is that, uh, with, you know, it's a bit of a lacuna, to say yeah. the least. Um, Peter Kellner, yeah. We shouldn't complain or look for blame in a zombie parliament because what used to happen was we used, parliament used to start in November each year and each election for the last 40 years has been in the spring. So what happened at the end of last parliament was this unseemly rush, thing called wash-up, as bills were uh, yes, halfway yes. through their process. Some, some were dropped and all the time debating was wasted. Others were rushed through without proper scrutiny. I, I think um, it may not be ideal, but I'd rather have a zombie parliament than the old wash-up system. Well, I think that, that the, the old wash-up system actually worked pretty well because, to be honest, if they really cared about something, it would have gone through. If they didn't care about but, it... But as Peter yeah. said, potentially without the scrutiny that good legislation oh, requires. Almost no uh, legislation is scrutinised properly now anyway. I mean, <laughs> because of the, the guillotines that are on every piece of government legislation that exists. I have to say, having watched Parliament in all its glory for a long time now. I'm not quite sure endless debate would be such a good idea, though. I'm, I've slightly come down in favour of the, of the controlled 
uh, you know, the government controls on some of the discussion because uh, the filibuster um, is... Does, does that apply to the Lords as well? Because what a, a lot of you hear is that the Commons isn't very good at scrutiny, but the Lords is quite good. The, the Lords is very good at detail, but they're kind of good at detail what they want yeah. to be good at. Um, and most of that stuff dying, happens. they really can't talk enough about that. Well, that seems to me true. Yeah. <laughs> it's, well, a I, bit, I, it's a little I bit close why, to the heart yeah. there. <laughs> Peter, let, let, let's move to the opinion poll situation. We're recording this on uh, the uh, on the Tuesday with 100 days to go till the general election. Has anything changing out there? <laughs> uh, <laughs> we've Is there done, life? <laughs> well, I think we've done, done, done about... 17, 18 polls, uh, five polls a week since the new year, and every poll has shown Labour and Conservative within touching distance of um, each other. At the moment, it's deadlocked, and it's been deadlocked now for the last three or four months. A year or so ago, Labour was about 10 points ahead. The Tories have stayed where they were in the low 30s, and Labour have dropped from the low 40s to the low 30s. UKIP are up, and of course the SNP is massively up in Scotland. But at the moment, Tim, it's very hard to see either party getting sufficiently far ahead of the other to win an outright single-party majority in May. I don't know who's going to be ahead. I think at the moment I'd slightly make the Conservatives' favourites be the you, largest you, you, party. You, you bravely went on the record in the Sunday Times yeah. a week or so ago and, and thought the Tories would be the I think the, the Tories would be the largest party, party but, 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 but quite possibly with a sufficiently narrow lead over Labour, that David Cameron may fail to form a government. We might yeah. end up with Ed Miliband as Prime Minister because Labour's you know, within 15, 16 seats of the Tories. But this is a complicated way of saying this is the most uncertain election I've uh, ever known in my very long adult life. But don't you think one of the things that has changed in the last week is that um, the SNP have laid their cards on the table and they're very interesting cards. I mean, mm. what they've said is they want a Labour, they want a Labour majority mm. and they want to support it with uh, guiding it in a progressive politics way. And, you know, the SNP play hardball. We discovered mm. that in the referendum. And I found that fascinating. I think that yep. they're going to work for that. Mm. They're going to help Ed Miliband. And, and, of course, the Tories have now produced a poster with a, a rather fattened photoshopped Ed Miliband <laughs> outside Downing Street cuddling Alex Salmond and presenting Which this. Which is really... People the, should not see that before breakfast, <laughs> I think. <laughs> the, the, the persistence of the SNP is something that's um, very interesting, Peter, but the Tories are very pleased with the green mm. surge that has happened in January, or has it? Are we seeing much of an uptick in green support? Because the Tories hope, just as they have this huge problem of a split on the right because of UKIP, they're hoping partly by inviting the Greens into the debates and giving them the attention that they that they have, that they will have a left-wing party biting chunks out of Labour. If the Greens took a, a number of votes off Labour in the crucial Tory Labour marginals, that would obviously be very bad for Labour, just as a big uh, switch from Tory to UKIP in those Tory Labour marginals would be very bad for the Conservatives. The Greens, you know, a year or so ago, they're around 2 or 3%. They're now around 7 or 8%. They went up a week or so ago to about 9 or 10% at the height of the arguments about the television debates yeah. when the Greens were in the news a lot because of whether or not they should be included in those debates. As that um, argument has slightly subsided in terms of public interest, the Greens are back down to 7 or 8%, but that is still a pretty substantial as, as, as wedge of numbers. As much as the Liberal Democrats are showing That's in right. the opinion. But I, I, I do feel that 
overexposure mm. to Natalie Bennett could make the support <laughs> going down. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Natalie Bennett is the leader of the Greens. <laughs> now, of course, David Cameron is delighted. Regardless of now what happens mm. with the debates, he's mm. put the Greens centre stage. Mm. But, of course, the downside for him of this play that he's made is that you know, he's been presented as a chicken um, by uh, your colleagues um, and throughout the parliamentary. Uh, he's actually being followed around by two chickens. Yes. <laughs> I mean, two, well, not real chickens. People dressed as yeah. chickens. You, 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 you can undertake that you have not been in a chicken suit yourself. I have not. No, yeah. and I, you know, I don't dress up. <laughs> <laughs> I draw the line at dressing up. But I have to say, you know, I am a lonely voice in this, but I think David Cameron has handled this with. Uh, very bad grace. I think any leader of uh, democracy should be willing to debate on television, whoever they want, whoever the broadcasters decide to put up there. I think that this, what has happened, lacks dignity, and I think it will hurt him in the long run. And I don't uh, Peter, is there it. any evidence no, that it is? No, because we used to have these arguments election after election when there weren't debates, and usually the Prime Minister of the day scuppered them, and there'll be two or three days of, of, of attacks and criticism and condemnation. It had no effect on the voters whatsoever. I personally take the perhaps slightly idiosyncratic view that I think the broadcast are far more to blame than the politicians because in America, remember what happened in America you had the Kennedy-Nixon debates famously in 1960 no more debates for 16 years they really got going yeah. in 76 and the reason they got going and have stayed is because an independent body set a clear formula that you had to have enough uh, stand enough states to theoretically have a chance of an outright uh, majority in the electoral college and you had to have 15% polling support in I think it was May of election year. If so, we had those criteria yeah. here we'd have the Tories, <laughs> Labour and UK. <laughs> but, but, but all I'm saying is you what should have, what the broadcasters should have done is get together just after the last election and set clear and ex, um, explicit and precise rules and say you know, in terms of vote at the last election, number of MPs, spread of MPs, whatever, polling support, whatever it is, set it out then, win the argument then, and then you simply activate it now according to which parties qualify. Mm. The broadcasters have shifted all their, um, there's no principle in what the broadcasters done. It, it's vague. I think they've played it ridiculously badly. I'm amazed they moved last Friday in the way they did in response to the David Cameron's demands mm. as well. And I think he was quite mm. amazed as well. Anne Trenman, Peter Kellner, thank you very much. Thank you also to Phil Aldrich and Richard Fletcher for our earlier segment on the world economy and to Dave Maguire. Most of all, thank you to you for listening. We'll be back next week. Goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.